Discipleship. A learner, a student, one who disciplines himself in the teachings and practices of another. But there is no note-taking, just following and learning and studying to become just like your master. A relationship, an intimate, instructive, and imitative relationship with the teacher, striving to become just like them. For Peter, Cephas, the rock. Peter's discipleship began with a fishing net. He was washing it after a very long and unproductive night of throwing and retrieving. Jesus was sitting and teaching the people from a boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, we have been working hard all night and have caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So Peter let down the nets and caught such a large number of fish that the net began to break. He signaled to his partners in the other boats to come and help. And when they arrived, they brought such a large number of fish that the boats began to sink. When Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Don't be afraid. From now on, you fish for people. So Peter left his net and followed Jesus, learning, studying, striving to become just like his master. Good morning, Orchard Hill. This morning we are starting a brand new series called Follow Me. And the two focuses of this message uh, in, in the series as a whole are going to be Peter and discipleship. And so we have the privilege of walking alongside Peter as he walks as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so today we are going to go back to where it very begins, and that is in Luke chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Now while you guys are turning there to set the, the stage for our message today, uh, I want you to understand that this story takes place at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. He has no disciples yet. Um, and to be honest, nobody really knows the identity of Jesus quite yet. Most people think he is a great rabbi, a great teacher. Um, but in chapter 4, we see Jesus in this area on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And here's a picture uh, of where Jesus had done the majority of his ministry, the majority of his healings, and the majority um, of, of his teachings. And so, at the end of chapter 4, right prior to where our text is going to begin, Jesus goes into the home of Simon, the one we call Peter, 
and Peter's mother-in-law was ill. She had a fever, and the Bible tells us that Jesus rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately. And this healing of Simon's mother-in-law begins an epic healing party in this area. People from all around the area are bringing people for Jesus to heal physically. He's casting out demons. He's doing all these incredible things. And so while nobody really knows who exactly Jesus is, Jesus is beginning to cause quite the stir here in this region. This brings us to Luke chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So Jesus goes to the shore, this very deliberate spot, and is standing there to teach the word of God. And because Jesus is causing quite the stir, people from all around the region are crowding to hear him teach the word of God. And this crowd gets bigger and bigger, and they come closer and closer. I kind of envision the crowd being like those people who even before COVID would get into your personal space. Those people who, who you know, they're talking to you and they just get really close to your face, and then you're like, i got to step back. I feel like this is what Jesus is doing here. He gets pinned to the shore uh, against the water. This leads us to verse 2. Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus sees these two boats uh, near the shore, and he sees Simon Peter, the same Simon Peter whose mother-in-law was just healed a chapter earlier, and he goes up to him and says, uh, can you stop cleaning your nets, take your boat, so I can get in the water in order to teach this crowd, right? We all know why Jesus wanted to do this for, for sound, right? The crowd is getting so large that he wanted to get out on the water for his sound to echo off the surface of the water so everybody could hear. But as we will soon see, this is not the only reason why Jesus chose Peter to bring him out on the water. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. So Jesus, he teaches, uh, everybody loves his teaching, I'm sure, but then asked Peter to do something quite strange. He said, just take this boat, throw your net out into the deep water. Now, this is a foolish thing for any Galilean fisherman to do. And it's foolish for a number of reasons. As we'll find out in the next verse, it's kind of foolish because Peter says, Master, we fished all night and haven't caught a single thing, right? Secondly, in my mind, Peter just got done cleaning those nets that he dirtied last night. So Jesus is asking him, hey, I know you fished all night, didn't catch anything. I know you spent all morning cleaning your nets, but now can you go throw your net out again and dirty it? Peter's probably thinking, no, no, no. Another reason why this is odd, uh, and you wouldn't probably notice this unless you really dive into the text, but the type of net that Peter was using you could only fish at night with, right? The Greek word refused to this big, bulky net. 
that uh, if you use during the daytime, all the fish are going to see, they're just going to swim away. So obviously the night before, Peter was fishing at night because you can't fish for fish using these nets during the daytime. And fourthly, I thought this is a foolish idea because who's the fisherman? This Jesus guy, he's simply a teacher in everybody's mind. What does he know about fishing? But for some reason, Peter says, all right, Jesus, I'll do what you say. And to everyone's surprise, we read what happens next. He said, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the net. Verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. They caught such a large amount of fish that first the nets began to break. They call over James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were their fishing partners, and said, come help us, come help us. And so they, they get their nets, and they manage to keep all of the, the, the nets from breaking outright. And they begin to just throw the fish into these boats. And the text says they got full, so full, that they began to sink. Orchard Hill, it's like a real-life fishing story, right? It's a real-life fishing story. Thinking back on my life, I have gotten many opportunities to go out fishing with my dad. And uh, we love doing that together. And I've gotten to come home with my dad, and my mom would always ask us, so how was the fishing? And we've often gotten to tell her, well, we caught our limit, right? We caught our limit in an hour and a half, or we caught our limit in two hours, right? It was a pretty good day fishing. But never have my dad and I got to say, we sunk the boat. <laughs> never. It is a real-life fishing story. And we laugh about this now. But this event struck a nerve with Peter. It, 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 it hit him hard. This miracle literally, as we see in the next verse, it brings Peter to his knees. Look in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. When Peter sees the craziness of this situation, he becomes overwhelmed. And all of a sudden, he forgets about the nets that were breaking. He forgets about the boats that were sinking. And I think Peter's main priority was to figure out who exactly this Jesus guy was. Jesus just healed his mother-in-law. Jesus is casting out demons. Now Jesus just provided the greatest catch of fish in fishing history. Who is this Jesus guy? And I think Peter knows he's somebody special, but he can't figure out exactly who he is. But we know that he's overcome with fear and tells this man Jesus to simply go away. And this brings us to the pinnacle of the entire story that we're looking at today. Verse 10. The second part of verse 10 says, Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. 
so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. After this absolutely crazy day out on the water, Jesus looks at Peter and tells him that he has a new mission, that he has a new vocation. No longer will he fish for fish, but he will fish for humans. Literally, he will catch living people. And just like that, Peter, his brother Andrew, and his business partners James and John leave everything to follow Jesus. They left behind their family business. They left behind literally two boatloads of fish. Quite the income. They leave their steady income. They leave their family. They leave their friends. They leave absolutely everything, people, in order to follow Jesus. Now, these are the types of stories that I think make for epic Sunday school lessons, right? It just, I mean, it's fun even just getting to share this story. It's a blast because it's such a great story. But today, I want to ask us, why are we taking the time to dive into this particular story? Why is this story in the Bible? What implications does this story have on our lives? I think many of you might be thinking, maybe this is in the Bible to prove Jesus' divinity, to prove that he is somebody really special. And while I think this story most definitely points to Jesus' divinity and his miracle-making power, this story is about something else. It's all about discipleship. It's all about Jesus calling his first disciples. And as we're going to find out, this particular story has great implications for our everyday life. This passage can transform our understanding and our Christian walk. But in order for us to, to really understand those implications for our lives, we need to have a much better idea of what discipleship looked like in the first century. So in the next 10 minutes, I want to give you a crash course on discipleship in the first century. Um, and so we are going to learn a little bit about the Jewish educational system. Um, and so I want to talk to you about the first stage of this educational system. Think of it like an elementary school. It's called Bet Sefer. This is for boys and girls. Everybody is welcome here at this school. And uh, the main goal of this school was to teach young Jews the stories of Scripture, but they were also challenged to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They were called to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So uh, this Bet Sefer was for ages uh, 5 through 10, and after this, the girls would stop to prepare for adulthood, but the boys could actually move on to a, a second uh, schooling called Bet Talmud. Now, Bet Talmud is for boys only, like I just said. It's for boys ages 10 through 12. And at this school, they would memorize um, the rest of the Old Testament, so they wouldn't just focus on the Torah, but they would focus in on all the writings and all the prophets. And so they had a huge job here. They would also begin at this age to begin dabbling with the oral interpretations of Scripture. 
When a boy hit 12, most of you have probably heard of the term uh, bar mitzvah, right? A boy would have his bar mitzvah, and he would become a religious adult. After a boy's bar mitzvah, he uh, would probably go on to join a family business, or he could actually join somebody else and start an apprenticeship program to learn a little bit more uh, about a skilled trade. However, if you are really, really, really smart, the best of the best, you could go on to a third stage of schooling called Bet Midrash. Now this is for boys ages 13 through 15, and I want to reiterate, this is for the best of the best of the best. Like if Bet, uh, if Bet Sefer, the first stage, is kind of the equivalent of like a high school degree, um, almost everybody gets an opportunity to get that. Um, most people would be able to get a bachelor's degree, so I kind of said that's equivalent to stage two, Bet Talmud. But this are people uh, who are really intelligent in the Jewish scriptures. They would uh, really be growing, um, really be learning, and they would really have a lot of, some would say, a bright future. And so at this age, uh, these students would really just take everything they've learned in stage one and stage two and apply it to life in a much deeper way. Now, after they completed this stage of their education, the best of the best of the best of Bet Midrash could move on to be a disciple. This is so exciting to see. And so dive into this, what I'm about to tell you. It's, it's amazing to really understand this. So at age 15, the best of the best of the best students in their Jewish schools could go on to be a disciple. Now how discipleship worked in the first century was a disciple or a student would go up to a rabbi or a teacher and ask if they could follow them. So understand, a, a rabbi or a teacher didn't choose his own students. The students chose him. And uh, if these students had uh, a bright future, so to speak, if they were very, very intelligent, the rabbi would say, yeah, you can come follow me. And at that point, they would leave absolutely everything behind. They would leave their family, their friends, uh, their family businesses, whatever they were involved in, they'd just drop it in order to follow their rabbi. And so for the next few weeks, whenever one of us up here uses the term disciple, understand that a disciple is simply a student of a rabbi. They're a learner of a rabbi. And it's not just intellectual knowledge, it's wisdom, it's skillful living. This is what discipleship was all about. Furthermore, a disciple wouldn't just want to pick any old rabbi, but they would want to choose a rabbi with authority. A rabbi with authority was extremely rare in Israel. Some uh, scholars think there's maybe 30 or so in the entire land of Israel. And if you chose a rabbi with authority, your rabbi could actually pass legal judgments. And secondly, they could introduce new interpretations to Scripture. And so I just loaded you with a bunch and a bunch of information. But I hope you are beginning to understand a little bit more about what discipleship looked like in the first century. 
However, I want to take this one step deeper, and the last thing I want to discuss is, what was the goal of a disciple? Like, why would a disciple leave absolutely everything in their life in order to go follow a rabbi? And there are four tasks of every disciple. And if you're taking notes, write these four things down. The first goal of every disciple in the first century would be to memorize your rabbi's teaching in their words. So forget note-taking if you're a disciple. You're not just taking notes, you're memorizing every single word. Think, how do we have every word of Jesus' teaching in our Bible? Because they memorize it. So that's the first step. They would memorize and internalize their teacher's words and teaching. Secondly, disciples would learn their teacher's traditions and interpretations of Scripture. So every disciple would go up to their rabbi, and their rabbi would teach them how to observe Sabbath. They would teach them how they fasted. They would teach them how they prayed. They would teach their disciples how they said a blessing over their food, right? Because the goal was to not just know what the rabbi knew, but the goal was to become just like the rabbi. Whatever your rabbi did is what you did. However your rabbi celebrated Christmas, let's say in our day, you celebrate Christmas that way, right? However he observed Sabbath, you observed Sabbath. However he prayed, you prayed. The goal is to be just like your rabbi. This brings us to the third goal of every disciple. And this is my favorite part. This is where it gets real for me. The goal of discipleship was to imitate your rabbi. So every disciple would have their eyes fixed on their rabbi constantly. However your rabbi talked, you talked. However he walked, you walked. I often explain this to youth group students by saying, it's almost like follow the leader, right? Think, think of it as follow the leader, right? If, if your rabbi takes a step, you take a step. If your rabbi touches his head, you touch, touch your foot. Your foot. If, if your rabbi touches your foot... You touch your foot. You do exactly what your rabbi does. If you don't get anything else out of this message, understand this. The goal of a disciple is to be exactly like your rabbi. Because when you memorize your rabbi's words and teachings, when you learn their traditions, when you begin to imitate and look like them, then you can do the fourth thing. And that is you can go make your own disciples. At the age of 30, any disciple could go on and to become his own rabbi. And so it's a beautiful picture. A rabbi would form and develop a group of, of disciples or students. They would train them up. Then, in a few years, these same disciples would go and create disciples in the name of their rabbi, in the tradition of their rabbi, in the process would continue and continue, and continue. So, understand this. Again, if you don't get anything else out of this message, understand the goal of discipleship is to be like your rabbi so you can help other people become like your rabbi. That's all we're talking about. That is discipleship in the first century. <clears throat> so now that we have a much better idea of what discipleship actually looked like in the first century, I want us to go back to our passage. And I need two volunteers 
I need somebody to look up Luke 3.23 for me. Who can do that? Rob, look up Luke 3.23. I need another volunteer to look up Luke 4.32. Who can do that for me? Don't worry, they're easy. Luke 4.32. Nate? All right. Uh, Rob, let me know when you find Luke 3.23. All right. About what age does Luke tell us Jesus is in this passage? 30 years old. Jesus is about 30 years old in Luke chapter 3. At what age could people become their own rabbi? 30. Nate, Luke 4.32, at the end it talks about his words had a certain characteristic. What, What were Jesus' teachings and words described as? His words had authority. So not only was Jesus at the age where he could become a rabbi, but people in Luke chapter 4 are saying, this rabbi is teaching with authority. So Jesus is one of those superstar rabbis in Israel. And people, why do you think they're coming to to learn and to talk uh, and, and to soak in every word? Why is he getting these huge crowds? It's because he is a superstar rabbi. I want you to think about Peter now. In the passage we just read, what was he doing for a living? He was fishing. What does that tell you about him? He never made it to stage three. Most scholars think he he probably just made it through uh, uh, Sefer and Bet Talmud, the first two stages, but then he joined in on his father's business. And so I want you to understand, there's nothing special about Peter. He was just an average guy, an average student. He didn't know everything there was to know about the Jewish text. And fourthly, when we get to the end of our passage today, what did Jesus tell Peter and his disciples to do? Follow me. Jesus said, follow me. You're no longer going to fish for fish. You're going to fish for men. So the Bible tells us they left everything and followed Jesus. What is this story all about? It's all about discipleship. I hope you see that that is the the reason why this passage is in the Bible. It's to teach us about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus goes up to Peter and says, Peter, I want to invite you to memorize my words and my teachings. I want to invite you to to go learn my traditions. I want to invite you to come and imitate me. Therefore, in three years, when I die, you can go make disciples. And in Matthew 28, what did we hear Jesus say? He, He looked at his disciples and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all nations and make disciples. To do what? And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. The disciples' journey was all about learning for Jesus so they could pass it on to other people. And so I want to close today and talk about the implications that this passage has on our life. What impact should this have on us? Now that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus 
looked at Peter and said, come follow me. I want you to be a disciple who makes disciples. Now, I think Jesus is giving us that same invitation today. I think Jesus is inviting you and I to go be a disciple who goes and makes disciples. That is what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian is really quite simple. Following Jesus is simply about memorizing our rabbi's teachings. Being a Christian is simply about learning how to, to live out his interpretation of Scripture so that we can better love God and neighbor. Being a Christian is simply about imitating Jesus, being holy like Jesus is holy, having compassion on the least just like Jesus showed compassion on the least. We are called to love our enemies just like Jesus called our enemies. And so really don't think following Jesus is a hard thing. All you have to do is play follow the leader. Know who Jesus is, how he lives, and you do it yourself. Now, <clears throat> I'm assuming some of you may be uh, hearing voices in your mind just saying, this isn't for me. I'm not cut out to be a disciple. Some of you might be hearing that lie that, that you don't know enough. And if that is you, I want you to be reminded of Peter. The New Testament called him uneducated. He didn't have it all together. He didn't know everything that he needed to know. I kind of pictured Peter actually using this excuse. But I feel like Jesus would just look at him and say, yeah, you're right, you don't know what you need to know, but by the time I get done with you, you will. Others of you are saying, I'm too sinful. How could I be a disciple who makes disciples? Do you know my past? I'd be such a hypocrite if I tried to help other people obey Jesus, right? But again, look at Peter in verse 8. He said, Lord, get away from me. I'm so sinful. But Jesus didn't say, get away from me. He said, follow me. Again, Jesus probably looked at him and said, you're right. You don't look like you should right now. But again, by the time I'm done with you, you will. Others of you might be saying, I don't know. I'd have to give up stuff to follow Jesus. I'd have to change the way that I live. I have to, to change the way that I interact with people. I would have to give up a sin and kill sin in my life. I would have to maybe leave a toxic relationship. I would have to get uncomfortable. And Jesus says, yeah, in Luke 9, 23, he says, if you do want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. It's not a comfortable journey, but I think the Bible promises us that whatever we receive in Jesus Christ, be far greater than anything that we could ever give up. And so remember that promise that whatever you receive in Jesus will be so much better than anything that you leave behind in order to follow Jesus. So I simply want to end with this question. What do you need to do today to be a disciple who makes disciples? For some of you, if you're, you're just kind of growing in your faith and you're not necessarily a mature Christian, maybe you need to stick your nose into the Gospels 
for the next two months and just read them over and over and over and over until you can internalize Jesus' teaching. Then you'll be able to grow. Others of you, I think, need to come to the point in your faith where you say, you know what, in order for me to be a better disciple, I need to imitate Jesus much better. I need to love the least of these in a much more real way like Jesus did. I can't lust because Jesus says a follower of me doesn't lust. I need to control my anger. Maybe you need to control uh, loving your enemies. I don't know what you need to do, but I think we all could take a step in this direction of imitating ourselves after Jesus. And I think lastly, some of you have come to the point in your faith where you look like Jesus. Not perfectly, but you look like Jesus. You know Jesus is teaching. And I'm convinced that it's time for many of us in this con- uh, congregation to step up and start making disciples. It's time that we start putting our, our faith in, into action and start developing, even if it's just one person at a time. We've been consuming for maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 80 years. But Jesus doesn't want you to just know everything about him. He wants you to help other people look like him. And to put in a a quick plug, on March 13, our staff is putting together uh, a little workshop on a Saturday morning, and it's just going to be geared towards helping us know how to disciple people. And so if you think God is calling you to help disciple somebody, but you don't know how, I encourage you to sign up for that. So let's end with that. What is one step that God is calling you to take today in order to be a disciple? Who makes disciples. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you would just continue to show us who you are. And would you continue to be patient with us as we will likely fail? You have mercy on us. But God, today is an exciting day. Because you have given us an invitation to become like you. And you've given us an invitation to help other people become like you. And so God, I pray that you would equip each one of us with your spirit to be able to do that with our lives. And so God, today is a day of commitment. And today, God, we want to commit ourselves to fully be a disciple who makes in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Well, today is an exciting day because as Kathy mentioned at the beginning of the service, today is Party Popper Sunday. And we actually have one student uh, who's going to be doing her profession of faith this morning. And so Gabby, I want to invite you to come join me up on stage. Now, Gabby uh, has made a commitment to be a disciple who makes disciples. She wants to commit her life uh, to following Jesus Christ. Um, And as I get this microphone set up, I do want to let you know that two weeks ago, she appeared before our shepherding team, and she gave an excellent witness to her faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, today she comes before you to do the same thing. She's going to be doing her profession of faith today, Um, And so, we are excited. Gabby, before we hear your testimony, I think this mic is all ready now. 
remember stay nice and close when you do that. Um, so you can, yeah, right over there. I want to ask you a couple questions. Uh, and the first question is a long question. So uh, the question is this. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you acknowledge that you are a sinner, sinful by nature, but by the grace of God alone, that your sins have been forgiven and your old nature put to death through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so that you may be brought to newness of life? What is your answer? <laughs> Second question, it's a lot shorter. Who is your Lord and Savior? Awesome. You may now share your testimony. I've grown up in a strongly Christian home, and I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six, after reading Heaven is for Real with my mom. Although I guess I just thought that I was in the clear, and I didn't do the best job of acting like one. When I was about 11, I was trying to read my Bible more often, and I came across a verse. It was Matthew 7, 22 to 23, and I quote, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, plainly I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. That verse stuck with me, and when we went to camp in St. Anne, it finally sunk in meaning that if I didn't try to do better, it wouldn't end well. After recommitting my life to Jesus, I started reading my Bible more, doing devotions, and thinking about how, how some of my actions might affect people, actually debating about them and trying to do them in the future. And things of the world bugged me more than they, would, than they had in the past. I've always wanted to be different, and now I've found the best way to do that, a way that can let me be myself better. Amen. For this testimony, let's give God praise. Yeah. Gabby, one of the parts that I love about your testimony is uh, that, that verse from uh, Matthew 7 that you, you just referenced. That You said it's more than just about believing something, but it's about really putting your faith into action and uh, that's just a beautiful thing to see that you want to live out your faith as a disciple of Jesus. It's not that we earn our salvation or we earn God's love, but it's the, the truth that because we have been saved from our sins, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we just express gratitude to him by pattering our life after him. And so I love that, that, that heart of your testimony. So uh, we're proud of you and we are excited to see you continue to grow. Uh, one thing we want to do before you step down is pray for you. And so if I could invite Bill and Rhonda to come join me up on stage as well. Uh, and Sydney, I want to invite Sydney up on stage. Sydney uh, is a youth leader at our church. And I'm glad this worked out because um, Sydney uh, has matured in her faith. And I would call her a sold-out disciple for Jesus. And over the past year, um, Sydney has actually made the personal commitment to disciple Gabby, to walk alongside her and to help her grow up in the faith and teach her to be obedient to Jesus. And so I thought it would be a great honor for Sydney for you to pray uh, for Gabby. And so if you could pray for her and as a congregation, um, if we could just kind of, I mean, we can't come down here for obvious reasons, but if we can extend our hands out towards Gabby and her family as Sydney prays for her, I would appreciate it. Dear Heavenly Father, 
thank you for today and thank you that we can gather here. Um, I pray over Gabby and I thank you that she has decided to follow you, that she wants to look more like you. I pray for this congregation as well as myself that we continue to want to look more like you, to disciple her and all the other people that she wants to disciple too. I thank you for your word and who you are, and I thank you that we can continue to grow an intimate relationship with you because that's what you desire for us. I pray a blessing over Gabby, her family, and this congregation, and I pray that we continue to raise up disciples and become better disciples ourselves. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, Sydney. Yes, let's give Gabby a, a round of applause. Now, Gabby, you just... Uh, professed your faith in Jesus Christ, and now you are part of a large body of believers who profess the same thing. And as a symbol of unity, I want to invite you to all stand at this time, and we are going to declare who our God is and what he has done for us as we recite the Apostles' Creed together. So let's just say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's celebrate all that God is doing by blowing off the party poppers.